0: Tell General Howard I know his heart. What he told me before, I have it in my heart. I'm tired of fighting. Our chiefs are killed. Looking Glass is dead. Tuhulhul Sota is dead. The old men are all dead. It is the young men who say yes or no. He who led on the young man, Alakot, is dead. It is cold, and we have no blankets. The little children are freezing to death. My people, some of them, have run their way to the hills and have no blankets, no food. No one knows where they are, perhaps freezing to death. I want to have time to look for my children and see how many of them I can find. Maybe I shall find them among the dead. Hear me, my chiefs. I'm tired. My heart is sick and sad. From where the sun now stands, I will fight no more forever. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, May 24th, 2021. Happy birthday, Bob Dylan. And today for 42 minutes, we're headed back to the late 70s when there was talk of a stolen election movements toward social justice, and thunder in the mountains. After the Civil War and Reconstruction, a new struggle raged in the Northern Rockies. In the summer of 1877, General Oliver Otis Howard, a champion of African American rights, ruthlessly pursued hundreds of Nez Perce families who resisted moving onto a reservation. Standing in his way was Chief Joseph, a young leader who never stopped advocating for Native American sovereignty and equal rights. Thunder in the Mountains, the latest book by Daniel J. Sharfstein, is the spellbinding story of two legendary figures and their epic clash of ideas about the meaning of freedom and the role of government in American life. Sharfstein is a professor of law and history and co-directs the George Barrett Social Justice Program at Vanderbilt University. He is a 2013 Guggenheim Fellow and his first book, The Invisible Line, A Secret History of Race in America, won. Numerous prizes, including the J. Anthony Lucas Prize for Narrative Nonfiction. He lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and more information about him can be found at his website DanielJSharfstein.com. I'm truly pleased and honored today to be welcoming him onto the show. How are you doing today, sir?
1: Doing great. Thank you for having me.
0: You bet. So can you tell us what the Nez Perce War was in a nutshell?
1: In the summer of 1877, right as a group of Nez Perce bands were being forced from their traditional lands onto a reservation in northern Idaho, there were a series of revenge killings that then spiraled into the U.S. Army, going after basically... About 750 people, only about 250 were sort of men of fighting age. The rest were women, children, elderly people. And rather than stay and fight in Nez Perce country, the Nez Perce families fled the U.S. Army and tried to move through the Bitterroot Mountains. Then they outran the army through the Bitterroot Valley then wound up sort of going along the, the continental divide, kind of that, that you know, ragged border between Idaho and Montana, uh, cut down through Yellowstone National Park, which uh, was newly formed. The Nez Perce families took some of the first tourists there hostage. And then in the late summer, moving into the early fall of 1877, You know, after trying to find sanctuary with their allies among the Bitterroot Salish and then uh, among the the crows, the Nez Perces fled straight north through the Buffalo Plains of Montana, trying to cross the medicine line, the Canadian border. uh, And and they were just shy of the border, uh, having outrun the U.S. Army for months. Uh, when they were overtaken by cavalry, and that's when Chief Joseph surrendered. Um, you know, in many ways, it was a a small war. Um, it involved only a fraction of the Nez Perce Nation. It involved very few people, but it, you know, what the U.S. Army expected would have been a a very short action, stretched out for months, and then. At the moment of surrender, Chief Joseph kind of vaulted into the national consciousness through that surrender statement. And so it, it was a war that in the end, it, you know, in many ways changed the way Americans thought about Native American reservations and Native American sovereignty. And it also kind of changed the face of, um, you, you know, how activism worked and how people could dissent in in the decades that that followed the end of reconstruction.
0: Well, so a lot of people have written about this. Why, why mm-hmm. did you you know, what is so compelling about this? And why do so many people write about the Nez Perce War?
1: Yeah, so it, you know, people have been writing books almost immediately from from the time this war happened. And, you know, for me, I Approached this a little bit sideways. My background was as a uh, legal historian of slavery, emancipation, and Reconstruction. And when I was writing my first book, I was uh, one of the main figures in the Invisible Line. Was a man who had worked in the Freedmen's Bureau during Reconstruction. Uh, Freedmen's Bureau. Really, in many ways, it's like the the first big government social agency in American history, and really represented this revolution in, you know, what the federal government sort of could and should do for its people. And in following his story, I found correspondence between him and the commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau, um, Oliver Otis Howard, who is this, you know, one-armed. Maine Yankee who, who had been a, a general in the U.S. Army through the Civil War and had commanded one of the, the flanks of Sherman's Army. And there was a cluster of letters written just in the heyday of Reconstruction, 1867-68. Uh, and then there's this 10-year gap. And as I was doing research with Oliver Otis Howard's papers at in the Bowdoin College Library in Maine, uh, there is also a letter from eighteen seventy eight and it was addressed to Howard in Portland, Oregon, and it, it this man I was focusing on, who was an African-American civil rights activist, you know wrote this letter to Howard saying, "Do you think that the Northwest and particularly Washington territory would be a good place to resettle African Americans from the south?" And when I read that letter, my my first thought was, what was Oliver Otis Howard doing in Portland, Oregon? Um, you know, he was this, you know, this New England Yankee, you know, Portland, Maine, I would understand Portland, Oregon was confusing to me. And he was also so central to the enterprise of reconstruction that, you know, I'd come to think of him as a, uh, not exactly a smooth Washington operator. He was kind of inept as an ad- administrator and political actor in many ways, but I did think of him as a, as a fixture of DC and Portland, Oregon was about as far away as you could get from Washington and still be in the continental United States. So I thought, what is Howard doing in Oregon? And then in the back of my mind, I thought, and when was the Nez Perce war? Uh, that's a story that people have been writing about it since 1877, and at various moments, it kind of has embedded itself into the national consciousness. And for me, right when I was learning to read, uh, my mother bought me a series of early reader biographies of great Americans, right? You get uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln and Susan B. Anthony and you know, Helen Keller and Chief Joseph. And there, there was a, just a thin, Dell yearling biography uh, of Chief Joseph called Chief Joseph, Guardian of His People. And it was you know, one of the very first books I ever read by myself. And the story of Joseph, you know, the idea that he and his, the, the families he traveled with, you know, his family, could survive against such daunting odds against the U.S. government— and then, you know, the, the tragedy of, of their surrender, that, that's a story that kind of lived with me, you know, for, for decades. So, you know, I thought, why is Howard so far from Washington? When was the Nez Perce War? And could it be possible that he had led army forces? And for me, once I found that out, uh, you know, I had this, you know, writing a book just takes years and years. So I just had this vision of, you know, the next five years, you know, living with Oliver Otis Howard and, and Chief Joseph and understanding that, that Howard, this champion of African-American civil rights, the namesake, you know, really the founding vision behind Howard university uh, in Washington, DC, you know, the idea that he could wage vicious war against a man who became another great avatar of civil rights you know that you you think of the nez first war in in some ways as kind of the making of the legend of chief joseph right it's the making of one civil rights champion but it became something very different when you understand it as you know the war that one civil rights champion waged against another and to me it, it it struck me as a a tragedy of the reconstruction and its aftermath
0: well so the fascinating thing to me too is that um we oftentimes in narrative things get simplified and so you know we want to just think of this is you know howard versus chief joseph and then i think the the general perception is that the brilliance of chief joseph is the that he was this this uh, war chief, you know, I think the soldiers mm-hmm. all painted him as like the, uh, the Indian Napoleon, but that, that right. couldn't be further from the truth, you know, so what was really going on, you know, I guess, um, yep. what, what was, you know, chief Joseph to his people?
1: Yeah. So Joseph, when, uh, he, you know, when the events that sparked the Nez Perce war happened, he was a, Relatively young leader, uh, you know. You think of the Nimipu, the Nez Perce Nation, and power in the Nez Perce Nation is very diffuse. There are different bands. The bands could be far flung; they could be a hundred miles away from each other, and it's not like a hundred easy miles. It's a hundred miles, you know, across Hell's Canyon, across you know over mountains, and so geographically isolated. And even within bands, you know, leadership is very egalitarian. So Chief Joseph was a young man. He was in his 30s. His father, old Joseph Tuekakas, had died in the last few years. And, you know, there were other bands who were also bands that were resisting moving onto the reservation and Looking Glass and Tohohozodes. And even his Joseph's brother Alicott, uh were, were people who had much more standing in terms of their prowess as warriors, as hunters. And so you know Joseph was a leader who you know the soldiers all and and generals thought about Joseph as the leader, the war chief. In part because he had really emerged in the five years before the war as kind of the diplomatic voice of the what were known as the non-treaty Nez Purses. You know, he was someone who, over the course of five years from the time you know white settlers started trickling into the Walla Valley until their exile from the valley uh, in 1877, he had repeatedly engaged with a range of different officials and he had been remarkably successful in getting his people's agenda kind of front and center for people in power. Um, so you know, Joseph was a, a diplomat. He was a negotiator and through the war, he fought as, you know, one warrior among many, he took some responsibility for their horse herds, which, you know, were enormous and was uh, a very important source of the Nez Perce family's ability to to flee the U.S. soldiers, but it was also an enormous source of Nez Perce wealth. Uh, And he also took great interest in, um, you know, his, the label guardian of his people. He you know, worked with the women, the children, the elderly, the the uh, people who uh, were fleeing, you know, alongside the people of fighting age. So, you know, he was a diplomat before the war. He had an important role, but not a military role uh, or military leadership role during the war. And then, you know, when it became... It, you know when they were surrounded when the war Chiefs had been killed um, when Whitebird had fled to Canada you know Joseph again emerged as the the voice who spoke to American power and for the rest of his life you know for for another you know 25 plus years he continued as a really essential leader in advocating for the the sovereignty of his people, and advocating for their rights as people who were, you know, just subsumed within the American Empire. So, I guess
0: uh, if listeners aren't aware, I mean, we we call it the Nez Perce War, but it really was more of, uh, you know, when I think about it, you know, it's not warriors versus warriors; it's warriors versus a whole people and their whole civilization and they're moving across the idaho landscape with with all of their belongings all of their um you know their horses their cattle their their teepees everything you know they're it's it's all the families everyone being chased by these soldiers um, but it's fascinating because you know they're crossing rivers adeptly and that you know the the soldiers are having difficulty keeping up with, with this whole civilization moving across the landscape. But maybe we should talk a little bit about Wallawa, you know, and also, mm-hmm. like, the idea of this this non-treaty band. I think those are two really important points that should be clarified.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so, they, you know, the Wallawa Valley is um, uh, right in the corner where uh, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho meet, and it's a high valley that is surrounded by mountains. And then on the eastern edge of the valley, you know, in, in some ways it, it looks like, you know, just rolling prairie for as far as the eye can see until the mountains in the horizon. And, but if you, you know, just like walk a few steps uh, in one direction, it's like the whole earth falls away. Uh, into the the valley of the snake river Hells Canyon, which is deeper than the Grand Canyon. And the Wallawa Valley was the the traditional summer home for Joseph's band. And they would winter uh, deep in the canyons by you know by by the Snake River and you know the the Wallawa River. And the you know, you, you look at the Wallawa Valley and you think, how can anything go in and out? These look like hard boundaries, right? Mountains and canyons, you know, it seems like, you know, the other side of, of Hell's Canyon should be like another country. And, you know, what I came to realize, it, you know, it's very important for me to to travel there and spend some time along in Nez Perce country and then basically the path that that uh, the Nez Perce families made during the war. Wallala Valley looks like a very isolated place, but it's amazing. Uh, it, you know, it, it really wasn't. You know, Chief Joseph's band spent their days climbing mountains and and, you know, going up and down canyons, uh, crossing rivers you know really enormous rivers and their idea of a i mean go, going you know their their travel put them in connection with all kinds of other nez perce bands but also they traveled across the Bitterroot mountains and hunted and and made war and made peace with all kinds of other nations uh, east of of the Bitterroots they also went you know went west to to the Grand Ronde Valley to uh, other parts of of Nez Perce country that had been settled and so the Nez Perces had all kinds of experience uh, and Joseph's band had all kinds of experience trading with white settlers they had built enormous cattle herds based on trade with pioneers on the Oregon Trail they also had enormous wealth from their horse herds. And, you know, when they were traveling uh, through the war, when they were going through areas that had been uh, settled by white people, many of them recognized each other from their previous travels. And certainly the white settlers in the Bitterroot Valley, for example, in Montana knew the Nez Perces and knew that they carried a lot of cash with them and would buy a lot of things from them. So, you know, the Wallawa Valley was isolated in many ways. It was a place of sanctuary and safety for many generations, but it was also kind of a a platform and a place where Joseph's band could become, you know, could become rich, could uh, engage confidently with white settlers and, you know, very collegially with white settlers and it kind of formed the basis not only of their sense of sovereignty, but also, you know, where where, and how their nation could could fit uh, in the larger U.S. scheme.
0: Well, so I think at this point we probably need to also touch on the dreamer religion, which is one of the most compelling aspects of the whole thing to me. So you, you do have these folks that are coming into contact with one another and they're they're building a, a new mode of being, you know. So we have this I, part of partly I see this as a clash of you know uh the natives are living really seasonally and they're they're not necessarily dictating the terms on the land. The land is telling them where they need to be at any given point in the year, you know, depending on uh, the game the fish or i think was it mm-hmm. too cold in the in the winter for them in the in the willalo valley and that's why they went mm-hmm. elsewhere but um tell us about the dreamers
1: yeah so we think about the uh the the colonization of the northwest um you know the 1840s into the 1850s you know were a time when christian missions come to groups like the Nez Perces and other Columbia Plateau tribes. There's a round of treaty making in the mid 1850s that seem maybe that they settle some issues with settlers coming and taking land. But basically the experience of settlement is very destructive for Northwest tribes, right? land is lost, people are, you know, murdered, they get sick. There is, uh, and, you know, whenever the government seems to promise some level of protection, the federal government by establishing reservations, essentially by making treaties, um, the treaties just seem to invite people on the edge to just constantly test the boundaries. And just things are, uh, you know, there there is just incredible disruption, and incredible death, and impoverishment, and pain. And in the middle of that, there are uh, it, there's a religious awakening that involves prophecies that envision a world without white people. Right? It's a, a very comforting kind of prophecy for people whose lives have been completely upended. But it's also a religion that the officials who were trying to corral Native peoples onto reservations and fix them as farmers on small plots of land as opposed to the kind of cattle ranching, horse herding, seasonal hunting that had been uh, very, very uh, sustainable and very productive for for uh, plateau tribes. They viewed the dreamers as enormously threatening, and I think they were threatening in a couple ways. I mean, first they, uh, you know, the officials would constantly say they're threatening to um, all white people because they envision this world without white people, but to me, the actual threat that the dreamers pose, you know, wasn't this kind of military threat. Uh, Dreamers, you know, there were just like a few thousand dreamers spread over vast territory. And in many ways, you know, you just think of it as the kind of messianic religion that, you know, comes up in a time of crisis, right? It really was born out of you know, weakness and disempowerment, as opposed to uh, a real movement to to uh, rise up and overthrow white people um, but I think the real threat that it posed was it, as long as there were people who were committed to a traditional way of life who would hunt you know seasonally who were living uh, uh, a life that was not fixed to uh, a small plot that you try and scratch some some wheat out of uh, if you can. Um, As long as people were living a traditional life, then there was a lot of reluctance for people to move on to reservations because the traditional life was just much materially much better and spiritually much more fulfilling. Than life as Christian farmers uh, on on reservations. So you know, the the dreamer religion, uh, the reservation officials would constantly write about the threats that they posed, and the way they stri- stated those threats, it seemed like they were real threats to white settlers. But the actual threat was to the reservation administrators, because as long as there were dreamers, it would always be hard to try and, you know, fence people in and and tie them to 10, 20 acres of land.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about, um, there there were the the treaty bands and so like in trying to understand mm-hmm. yep. that was the interesting thing in your book about these legal arguments that Joseph was making and, and making very well where mm-hmm. i think at one point if i if i'm like read this correct they decided to appoint a head chief of the different nesper's bands mm-hmm. even though they all thought of themselves as kind of autonomous in their decision making mm-hmm. and then uh the head chief signed the the treaty of, maybe it's 1855, that yep. reduced the... 1863. Actual, mm-hmm. 1863. Oh, so 55 was w- the original size of the reservation, and then they greatly reduced it. But, By
1: about 90%, yep.
0: Yeah, and so Chief Joseph's father, whom they called Old Joseph, you know told his son, don't ever sell don't ever sell our land or, you know, so like Wallawa ends up becoming kind of like the, the Holy land if the whole thing and Joseph and those bands never signed that treaty. But, you know, from Howard's point of view, they didn't understand, you know, democracy. But the interesting thing that I was thinking about is that they did, it's just, they were thinking more in terms of States rights. And so these were, you mm-hmm. know, autonomous States of, you know, like nations of the same, you know, within within this nation, these are states um, that didn't sign on to this thing.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, when when we when we talk about the Nesper's bands who were non-treaty, really they were treaty Indians. They were 1855 treaty bands, and the 1855 treaty essentially drew a boundary that pretty much corresponded with everywhere Nez Perces were living and many of their traditional lands. And it included the Wallawa Valley. And then um, in the early 1860s, gold was discovered in Nez Perce's country in Idaho. And within a year, there were you know, many times more white settlers than Nez Perce's. And the gold rush settlers were horrible to the Nez Perces in terms of just in, in terms of the violence that was born, you know, physically on them, uh, in terms of the violence that was born on the land. Uh, it was just uh, environmental devastation, cultural devastation in Nez Perce country in Idaho. Um, now, the Wallawa Valley was was, you know, to the west of that and across the Valley of the Snake and was safe from from that but the federal government response was to draw a you know a small reservation uh, that was just one tenth of the 1855 size that the government felt was a, it was capable of policing and it, you know rather than evict all the people who were illegally mining gold in in Nez Perce country in violation of the 1855 treaty. The signatories to that treaty were the bands that uh, lived in the area that was going to be protected, and they signed away the rights to everything else. And so the non-treaty Indians were people who rejected the 1863 treaty which became known as the steel treaty um and the chief who was kind of the primary signatory in the eyes of the uh federal government was uh, a man named uh chief lawyer who had been who bore a title as head chief of the nez Perces, but you know the the title itself it, it wasn't really an election of a head chief you know for the Nez Perce bands he was someone who was chosen to be kind of the primary liaison with the federal government in part because uh he, you know he could could speak well and so the US government gave him the title of head chief but he was regarded differently by the Nez Perces um in saying that they should not be bound by the 1863 treaty, you know, the non-signatories like Chief Joseph and his band, like Whitebird and Looking Glass and Tohohozot and their bands, you know, I don't think of it so much as like states' rights. I, I just think of it more like they were denied representation because they really didn't see lawyer as, as representing their interests at all.
0: Joseph survived the war. He surrendered. Many didn't. Mm-hmm. Did, did did it have a happy ending? Did they all get to go back to the Wallowa Valley? Did he ever make it back? Or, you know, what eventually became of Joseph?
1: When Joseph surrendered, one of the terms that Howard offered him was that after the winter was over, this was, you know, October 1877, after the winter and after they could, you know, cross mountains again, uh, they would be restored to Nez Perce country. But General Sherman, who was the commander of the, the U.S. Army, basically overruled that determination and sent the, the surrendered Nez Perce families um, first to, to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas and then to northeastern Oklahoma in, in, um, I believe it in Ponca country. And uh, and both of those places were horrible. They, they were told this would be their permanent exile. They were in malarial flats and they, you know, tremendous numbers died of, of dysentery and all kinds of um, respiratory diseases. They had basically 100% infant mortality. People started killing themselves because they were depressed. And is from 1877, Joseph desperately wrote Howard for help. Howard said, You should just make the best of it in Oklahoma. And what's amazing is Joseph refused to accept that and just continued his activism in the same way, that, much the same way that he had been sort of fighting for his people's sovereignty before the war. And their forever exile wound up lasting about eight years. And then the survivors of Uh, what was known as the Hot Place from Indian Territory, Oklahoma. They wound up being transported back to the Northwest. About half of the group was allowed to settle on uh, the Nez Perce Reservation, mostly people who had converted to Christianity in exile. And then the other half um, wound up going to the reservation, uh, the the Colville Indian Reservation, which is now the the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation, near Spokane, and so they were in kind of north central Washington state, which was far from the Wallawa Valley and it was not the wallawa valley and so it, you know Joseph's band is is still on the Colville Reservation. There has been really interesting movement to um, to buy land in the Wallawa Valley, so that is is happening now. And even before then, Joseph's band would wind up working as seasonal hops pickers in traditional Nez Perce country. There was always hunting in traditional Nez Perce country. And, you know, it's interesting as hops pickers, they, they were, it was like, it was okay for them to live in Nez Perce country as long as they were, you know, kind of employed in, you know, and subsumed by a a white-owned money-making operation, but them just, you know, living on their own was worthy of, of you know, attack and destruction. So Joseph himself had, you know, in the course of his activism to terminate their exile, to gain some land in the Northwest, he actually, right up until his death, kept succeeding in reopening his claims to the Wallawa Valley. You know, he successfully argued that the war didn't extinguish their claims, uh, that the the government uh and the government kept considering whether to allow his band to return to the valley. And so very late in his life he went back and he saw you know, many settlers whom he had known in the five years before the war, and he spoke to groups of people and he had with him uh, an agent of the federal government who was reporting to Washington you know what his take was on whether land would be possible and so he did return he did see his land, he did go to his father's grave and even as the settlers objected to any restoration of land to, to Joseph and, and his people, and even as the federal government, as it tended to do, just deferred to the settlers' wishes. You know, Joseph never lost that, that dream of land in the Loala Valley. And it's amazing to see that dream you know, being realized today. Well
0: so we're basically out of time but I'm curious after a book like this you know what do you work on next or will you allow us that to ask that question
1: Yeah that's that's a, a great question um you know I'm I'm I've been thinking about a couple of different projects one I've been thinking a lot about the immigrant experience in the US and you know in many ways The experience of Joseph's people is the experience of kind of hashing out, you know, what the meaning of citizenship is, what sovereignty is, and just thinking about the immigration experience and how immigrants figure out what it means to be American and what it means to be an American citizen. But I've also been thinking, you know, with Howard and the reconstruction as kind of the dawn of big federal government, And big federal government really extending itself in the the conquest of of the West and Northwest, and then extending itself to overseas empire. Um, You know, Howard's this figure at the dawn of the administrative state, but the the big federal government that we all live with is largely the New Deal state. And so I've also been doing a lot of thinking about you know how the New Deal defined American power, how we had a period of kind of stable accommodation between big business and big government, uh, and then how that all starts to fall apart in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. Uh, and you, you know, it's, it's something that uh, uh, we're really living with today.
0: Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing that with us.
1: Thank you. You bet.
0: You've been listening to Daniel Sharfstein on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and syncbook.com. For more information about his work, visit his website, danieljsharfstein.com, to which we'll link. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests should catch past shows or subscribe to the podcast. The iTunes please be sure and visit our website at thesinkbook.com if you like this podcast check out others as currently all the syncbook radio archives are free all this and more can be found at thesinkbook.com thanks so much and I only ask of the government to be treated as all other men are treated if I cannot go to my own home let me have a home in a country where my people will not die so fast
2: Crash! Black's got the stagger, White's got a soul trainer, mama's got cramps and look at your handshake. I heard the news today, oh boy I got, it sweet and you got the Is there a sweetheart, you gotta be here with the man who can say no more In the a when I can suck on the drawer In the retirement I can hope with that judging In the repair that will write me for die. dying Ain't you proud that just fucked our faces Ain't the one dance song that can make me